Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 467 of the podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And Happy New Year. I'm so excited to be with you for the kickoff of a brand new year. For those of you who listen, uh, well, when these episodes come out, I hope it's been a great year so far. Uh, I know it's kind of the third year of crisis leadership. Well, we'll be there for you. We'll have some episodes that are very much dedicated to what's going on in the moment. And then some bigger ones like this one. I'm so excited to have Rick Warren here. I call this the legacy interview. And we spend about 90 minutes unpacking things. Plus, there's a lot more. And thanks to our partners, Promedia Fire. This episode is brought to you by Promedia Fire. You can start off your new year right with the 2022 digital playbook from Promedia Fire. Claim your copy today at promediafire.com slash 2022. And by Glue, you can sign up for your free 14-day trial of their texting app called Thrive. That's Thrive with a Y. And start connecting with your church community. Go to Thrive, T-H-R-Y-V-E dot I-O. Well, Rick and I started talking about this episode uh, in the middle of 2021 when he announced he was, after 42 years, going to step back uh, after Saddleback, that he was not going to be the lead pastor of Saddleback anymore. They were initiating a search. And so I flew down to California and really spent the better part, well, all afternoon with him. Uh, Now, this is really cool. So we're going to bring you the full interview. We did a 90-minute interview. As usual, it's available by video as well over on my YouTube channel. Just go to uh, YouTube, search my name and Rick Warrens. You'll find us there. And uh, what was really cool, though, is he decided to give me a tour of his offices and his private library. So he has gone about collecting the largest collection in the world of signed books, signed by the author. It's actually recognized by Guinness. And uh, we took a camera crew with us. And so that video will also be posted on my YouTube channel. So you won't hear a lot of it on this podcast, well, none of it, because it kind of needs a visual thing, but it's really cool. Uh, He has got the original copy of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans signed by Luther. Yeah, that (laughs) that level of awesome. And uh, so we have a look. He's got all kinds of beautiful, historic, uh, well, really not relics of the church, but you know what I mean, like landmarks of the church in that library. And uh, yeah, you got a tour of it. So you can go over and see that on my YouTube channel. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Rick. I'm sure most of you know exactly who he is. He is known around the world and an influencer. On that tour as well, he showed us uh, a state dining room that he has, just a, a, I think it's like 14 seats or whatever, set up in his offices. And he will often bring in presidents in the United States, global leaders to negotiate everything from world peace to some of the problems that they're dealing with. He's been a pastor to many, many presidents. And we talk about all that and a lot more. And I have a feeling as much as I spent four hours with him, this needs a round two. So Rick and I are talking about doing a second round uh, at some time too. Anyway, let me give you the bio. I don't want to keep this too long. I want to jump into the interview, but I'm just very excited about it. Rick is an innovative pastor, renowned author, and global influencer. The various ministries Rick has created have a uh, are a multifaceted expression of his heart to bring the whole gospel to the whole world. Rick and Kay Warren founded Saddleback Church in 1980 in Lake Forest, California. Saddleback has grown to over 30,000 weekly attenders across 16 locations, including four international campuses and an online campus hosting listeners from around the world. 
They have an outreach of more than 300 community ministries, including the nationally recognized Celebrate Recovery, a Christ-centered recovery program now implemented in over 25,000 churches. Rick's best-selling books, The Purpose Driven Life, has sold more than 50 million copies, been translated into 85 languages, and it is the best-selling hardback book in American history outside of the Bible. His book, The Purpose Driven Church, is listed in the 100 Christian books that changed the 20th century, and Forbes magazine called it the best book on entrepreneurship, management, and leadership in print. So you're in for a treat, and make sure you check out the YouTube channel while you're there. Subscribe, and that way uh, you can see it if we ever bring you more bonus footage, which we probably will in the future. So the past two years has required constant change as a leader, and guess what? Unfortunately, this year will be no different, but it will include great opportunities to help you navigate this year and level up your digital game with new technology, Promedia Fire is providing a free 2022 digital playbook. Here's what it includes. Five digital trends to maximize your impact in 2022, the six biggest risks of decline to your organization and solutions for growth, why the hybrid approach will fail unless a key strategy is applied, and the digital investment guide with the best ROI for growth. So Promedia Fire is giving you this for free, to start off the new year right and get the 2022 digital playbook from Promedia Fire, go to promediafire.com slash 2022. That's promediafire.com slash 2022. And recently, my team and I have been using an app called Thrive. If you're on my texting list, that's what's powering it. So it's with a Y, T-H-R-Y-V-E, and it's been really useful. And now churches, you can use the same app. Thrive makes it incredibly easy to send texts to individuals or groups, but it's so much more than that. You can use it to send devotional series, answer common questions, get more prayer requests, send surveys, and even collect stories of life change. So uh, it's more human-to-human service for everyone. And as you probably know, texts have an average open rate of 98%. Your email inbox, not really the same. So when you use Thrive with the other tools you already use, it's even better. It's already integrated with many leading church management systems, and more are coming on board regularly. That's why Thrive is the leading church texting solution, and it's completely free to get started. So you can go to Thrive, T-H-R-Y-V-E dot I-O today to sign up for a free 14-day trial so you can connect with your church community. That's Thrive.io to get started today. Well, remember to check out what's on YouTube, but in the meantime, my conversation with Rick Warren. Rick, I've been excited about this time. Hey, buddy. It's glad to be together. <laughs> well, we've spent some time together already yeah, yeah. and uh, today, and it's just great to have you. This is a momentous time. Uh, last year, yeah. you announced that you would be stepping down, uh, moving yeah. on to a new role. And uh, I watched this video that you posted on YouTube. I think you originally did it for your staff. I did. Yeah. And you outlined... 11 reasons why you decided to step back as the senior pastor, the only pastor so far right. of Saddleback. Right. Do you want to walk us through a couple of the key ones? We don't need all 11, sure. just a couple of them. Sure. Well, b- bottom line is there are human reasons and there, then there's God's reason. Right. And, and the big reason, the God reason is God is calling me to do something harder. Hmm. He's calling me to go. I have prayed the same prayer every weekend for 42 years. As I drive to church on Saturday night, and as I drive to church on Sunday uh, morning, I have quite a long, I call it my game day prayer. It kind of puts me in the mental mindset to do you know, four, six, or more services. And uh, one of the things I've said every week 
for 42 years is, God, I offer my resignation to you. I've said that every every Sunday, at least twice, on Saturday and Sunday, for 42 years. And as I'm driving down the road, I literally have a thing where I take my hands off the wheel on the freeway for a fraction of a second. Nobody else is supposed to know that. But I do as a symbolism of I'm not in control. And what I say is, God, this is your church. You used me to start it, and uh, I'm grateful, but it's not my church. It belongs to you. And not only does it belong to you, I belong to you. And so you have a right to move me if you want to. And so I give you permission with my resignation here to, to do anything you want. If there's somebody who can do a better job than I'm doing, if there's somebody who you need to take it in a different direction, I willingly step aside. And then the most important part of the prayer was this, and I'm willing to do something more difficult. Hmm. Now, I've said that, I'm willing to do that something more difficult for 42 years because there are a thousand things that would be easier to do than lead a, a large church of 30,000 people with campuses on four continents. It's incredibly complex, a staff of 500, uh, and all of the, the movement stuff that we're involved in. So there are a lot of things that would be easier. Yeah. God took me up on my offer and gave me an assignment that's more difficult. So yeah, and that's the question, why now? 42 yeah. years, all of a sudden, yeah. you're, you're how old? Uh, I'm 67, yeah. and um, I, I, you know, when I started the church at 25, mm. I, I publicly stood up and announced that I would give 40 years of my life at the very first service. Now, that was a dumb thing. You shouldn't just announce a time because it wasn't a, a, a time from God. It wasn't a word of the Lord. It was just, it was the biggest number I could think of. I thought when you're 25, 65 sounds ancient. If I make it that long. If I make it that long, <laughs> somebody else should probably take over by then. Right. Uh, but what I should have said was, guys, I'm here to stay. Lord willing, I'm not gonna walk out on you when it gets tough. Was that paradigm shifting back then? Because I mean, go back to 1980. Right, in the, in the tradition I was raised in, right. which is more mainline, I right. mean, if you had a 10-year pastor, that was forever. Well, yeah, yeah, and, and as, a, as a Baptist pastor, it was even shorter. Right. Uh, both my father and my father-in-law and my uncle were Baptist pastors, and you would stay in a church maybe five years. Exactly. And then you'd go somewhere else. And of course, if you're in a Methodist thing, they moved you intentionally, because right. they didn't want you having long-term pastorates. Actually, so, so why did you choose 40 years then? Well, because I, I, I... I know it was a big number, but why did you decide to stay for... There were a couple reasons. I'm glad you asked it. When I was in seminary, before I start, moved to California, one of the things that I did is I read every book in print on church growth at the time, which was 72 books at the time. And there are, of course, far more than that. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the, the second thing was... Um, it was a new category, church planting, and, and, right. and nobody, nobody knew about that. The second thing is I personally wrote to the 100 largest churches uh, in the world, and I asked them a series of questions, and I asked them for a packet. Send me your bulletin, your constitution, uh, your programs, and, all, and I would get these packets and unload them, and they filed them all, and I'm learning from others. What I discovered was a couple things. It takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. There's more than one way to grow a church, and if you're growing a church, I like the way you're doing it, whether it's my style or not. So anybody who tells you there's only one way to grow a church, they're wrong, they're just wrong. It depends on where you are and, and what you are. But I, the, there were two common denominators in every growing church. Okay. Every single growing church. One of them was the longer a pastor tends to stay, the stronger it tends to get. Now, that's if you've got integrity. 
<laughs> Integrity okay. yeah. and, and, and a bit and, of momentum. And, and, yeah, and, and if you keep going, uh, uh, it, 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 let me come back to this in just a minute. But the other thing is, is um, the faith factor, and that is people are not afraid to believe God. Okay, that whether it's a small situation or a small town or multi, uh, or, uh, I, I've started churches in four areas. I've started a, a rural church mm-hmm. uh, in my barn in a town of less than 500 people. I've been in an inner city church in a metropolitan area where I was a minority as a white. I, I've been in an international church plant in Nagasaki, Japan, and I've planted uh, in suburb suburbia. So whether inner city or rural or suburban or urban, um, the faith factor of the pastor is an important thing. But a lot of pastors, um, they forget, there's a story at the end of Purpose Driven Church where I talk about bamboo. The way you uh, grow bamboo is just you get a bamboo stick and you cut it up and you plant it and you water it for a year and nothing happens. And then you water it for a second year and nothing happens. And you water it for a third year and a fourth and a fifth year and nothing happens. And on the sixth year, nothing happens. And on the seventh year, you water it and one day it sprouts. And when bamboo sprouts, it grows very fast. It can grow a full meter overnight. Yeah, yeah. And some bamboo can grow three meters or nine feet in a week. And they just explode, but they they don't for a long time. A lot of guys out there are pastoring bamboo churches, hmm. and what they do is they've been watering, watering year after year, and they think, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And then along about year seven, they move. A new guy comes in, takes over, and then explodes, and he gets the credit. Right? That is not fair. That is not fair because they put all the work in to do it. Okay. Well, that, that, that was so helpful. And you and I, we both love like rabbit trails, yeah, right. excursies and yeah. that kind of thing. So that's why you stayed. You decided this is a long assignment. Yeah. Well, 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 as I said, one of the common denominators of the biggest churches is nobody had been there two years. In the largest churches, they had all been there for decades. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And so yeah. I'm going to go. And so I actually asked the Lord, I said, Lord, I'm willing to go anywhere in the world. I told him this, I'm willing to go anywhere in the world. Kay, we thought we were gonna be missionaries to China. Uh, and the, the uh, cultural revolution shut that down in the 70s. Uh, but, and that was the biggest disappointment of my life. Hmm. We thought we were going to China. We were Why, why to, China? I had been in Japan and we had a heart for uh, Asia. And I just thought this is the biggest country in the world. They're gonna need lots of churches. And I thought they're gonna need lots and lots of churches. Uh, but God shut the door on that, and he said, you're not going to be a missionary. You're going to be a missionary sending agency, okay, which ended up being what was true. But um, because of that, I said, Lord, I'll go anywhere in the world if you'll give me the privilege of spending my entire life in one location. I have now pastored six generations, okay, from the, 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 the great generation of World War II, Okay, and then the, the silent generation, the buster generation, the boomer generation, the Gen X, the, the millennials, uh, the Ys, the Zs, and now the alphas. Yeah, they're coming up. Okay, now, now, now the alphas. And so w- when I have people on my staff that were born in the church, I watched them not be born, but I watched them within seconds yeah, yeah. after their birth, and, uh, and I've known them all their lives. When you have integrity and when you genuinely love people, it gets better every year. When you don't, it gets more difficult. 
Uh, and I'm not saying in productivity it gets better every year. I'm just saying your ministry becomes more solid every year. I'm not saying, well, if you just stay in a place, well, one day it's gonna grow. The dirty little secret, friends, that nobody ever talks about this, the number one factor on the size of your church is your location. It's not your giftedness. Okay, I hate to tell you that. So you're saying you picked some good property? Exactly, I picked a place where there, where there was gonna be growth. Um, if I had stayed in Redwood Valley, where I grew up, I could have spent 40 years there and the church would still be 35 people. Because you're a, a village of 500 people. Yeah, the, 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 the shoe tells the foot how big it can get. And, and, and if, you're, you know, if you put a goldfish in a small bowl, it's not gonna grow. And, and yet we need churches in all of these villages. Yeah. And so this is not a slap. Clearly we need more small churches than we need giant ones because um, God made more of them. Uh, and so we, we talk about rabbit churches and we talk about tiger churches, we talk about elephant churches. At Saddleback, we plant all three kinds. We've planted tens of thousands of rabbit churches, which are small groups. Any, anywhere else in the world, they're called house churches. Only in North America do we call them small groups. Everywhere else, they're a house church. We have planted tens of thousands of house churches. We have 7,000 plus house churches in the Saddleback church system here in California. But then tiger churches are the churches between 75 and 150. And I call them tiger because they're almost impossible to destroy. <laughs> okay, the, the pastor can run away with the secretary and, they, and the deacon run away with the money. They're not there for the sermon. They're there for the fellowship. Right. They're there for the relationship. And we need, and, and then there's the, the elephant church, which is the mega church. You do need mega churches in mega cities that when they walk, they, they shake the ground and it helps every other church. But you certainly don't want everybody to be that. Now, so, the so, rabbit churches, by the way, multiply fastest. <laughs> and if we're gonna win the world, we gotta start more of those than anything else. That's a good metaphor. Okay, so that's why you, des you decided to stay yeah. for four decades. For four decades. Uh, but you listed 11 reasons. Yes. One of them was your health. Yeah, one of them was my health, but that wasn't the biggest factor. Okay. Uh, the, the, the biggest factor for now was, one, God had called me to lead this movement called FTT, Finishing the Task. And I knew it was harder, and I knew I was gifted and trained, and I felt like everything else in my past had prepared me for this. And so that was it. But another thing was now is because the staff at Saddleback right now is the healthiest it's ever been. Mm. We haven't always been healthy. Every staff goes through ebbs and flows over the years. And in 42 years, there's sometimes when I was super happy with our staff, and there were sometimes I would wake up and go, how did I get all these people working with me? You know, <laughs> and where did they come from? And why are they cranky? And 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 all that. But what happened in the last two years, COVID prepared my staff and actually prepared the church for my transition. And the way it did is this, Carrie, one of the things leaders know is that when you're in a crisis like COVID, you over-communicate. You actually communicate more than you did in normal times. So we went from a weekly staff meeting to a daily staff meeting. And we went from a weekly elder meeting to a daily elder meeting when COVID hit. Now, we couldn't meet together in person, so we used Zoom. But every day we would meet as elders and every day we would meet as a staff. As the 
COVID went and that started building the cohesiveness. And what it did was in staff meeting, you often look at the back of people, the heads of people. But in staff meeting, in a, in a Zoom, you're looking at everybody. And they can comment over the side and they can, um, they can uh, write in the, in the chat room. And, and it actually uh, built camaraderie and koinonia and fellowship and deepened that. And so um, we got closer and closer and closer. We eventually went to two staff meetings a week and then we went eventually back to one. But the, the benefit of it had already taken place. And my staff is more engaged and more healthy than they've ever been in 42 years. So I feel very confident. If I were to drop dead right now, Saddleback, would, they don't need me to keep this thing going. Hmm. They really don't. See, that's a frequent, and, and you and I have done a few interviews over the last year or two, so we'll link to where yeah. we talked about finishing the task yeah. and all that. Yeah. But um, that, is, that is a frequent criticism of yeah. megachurches, yeah. and I'm sure you've heard it a million times. Yeah. Rick, what happens if you get hit by the bus? Yeah, well, the answer is, is you have to be purpose-driven, not personality-driven. Mm. Personality-driven means when you're gone, attendance falls off. When you're gone, offerings fall off, okay? I was gone for seven months when I wrote The Purpose-Driven Life. I, I, between Christmas and, and, and July, I only preached twice in those seven months. I preached Christmas, then I preached Easter. I held no staff meeting. And I was working 12 hours a day on writing that book, Purpose Driven Life. While I was gone, we added 452 members and, um, you know, the church did great. Yeah, so there's a lot of pastors who are not. Because we had structure for it. Sure. So let's talk about that because there's a lot of pastors who aren't in that position. And I remember leading for a while when I preached. Attendance was good, right, right, things right, were good. Right, if right. I took a vacation, it took a nosedive and it took me a few years to figure that yeah, out. Yeah. What are some of the keys to making sure yeah. that, like for the leader who's there right yes, now yes, going, yes, yes. Ah, I got nobody. Yeah, right. Well, first let me relieve a little bit of guilt. If you're planting a church, it does depend on you. Okay, <laughs> right. so uh, in the first two years of the church, if I had left, the church would have died. Yeah. Okay, There's n and you don't need to be ashamed of this in a church plant or in a new start, that that it is all depending on you at start. You just know this isn't where we want to be. Okay, and we want. I want to wean them of me. Okay, I want to wean them of me. Now, there are multiple ways you can do this. You can't do it quick. I can show you how to wean the church of your leadership, but I can't show you how to do it fast. Hmm. Okay, it just is impossible. It takes time. And it has to do with both the preaching, okay? It has to do with recruiting of lay volunteers. It has to do with empowering and mobilizing. It has to do with setting up a system of discipleship that that system keeps going even when you're sick. Hmm. Okay, that, we didn't set that up overnight. I, I can tell you how to get to where we are, but it took me 42 years. Yeah, and I was gonna say too, I mean, Purpose Driven Church came yeah. out, what, 17 years? Yeah, 95, 95, so 15 years yeah. into the life cycle of Saddleback. Right. 
you finally got to the point where you had systems right. in place. We, we actually had the systems in place a little bit earlier. I, I did what a lot of guys didn't, don't do, is I waited 15 years to write my first book. <laughs> Some guys start a church and a year later, they're writing as an authority on how to do a book. I'm going, you might want to wait a while. I had trained over 40,000 pastors in personal seminars before I ever put it on paper. Hmm. And so I was, I was uh, revising every PD conference We'd been teaching PD conferences for 10 years, okay, before I put it in a book. So when it went into a book, it wasn't like theory. It was like, we've been practicing this forever and we've been changing it. You know, we've been learning. So the other big question that always comes up, especially with a saddleback, is yeah. huge shoes to fill. Yeah. Like huge. Like yeah. who, number one, who wants the job? Right. Number two, right. who can do the job? Right. Is it a single person? Right. Is it a right. team of leaders? Is right. it that all your campuses become independent? Right. Um, that, that's not just true of Saddleback. That's been a question so many people ask. How do you answer that? One of my mentors was Peter Drucker. Oh, yeah. I started talking to Peter Drucker about my successor literally 20 years ago. Literally 20 years ago. I have notes from 20 years ago when I wrote down and I walked in and I said to Peter, Peter, I believe there's no success without a successor. I'm not anywhere near that, but help me start getting ready for it. He told me a number of different things that have been very helpful. Uh, one of them is, of course, that um, usually the successor needs to be somebody very different. Okay, so okay. you're not looking for a I, No, no. In fact, the last thing Saddleback's need needs is a poor image of me. Because everybody goes, he's not Rick. Well, nobody can be me, and nobody can be you, and nobody can be you, okay? So there's you're one in the zillion, okay? You're a unique thumbprint, voice print, handprint, eye print. So nobody's gonna replace you. Nobody's gonna replace me. What a church often needs is something totally different hmm. uh, than, than, than uh, the direction it was going for. Now, sometimes... Um, it, you know, you can do an intentional interim. Okay, now this is an important point. Now, I'm not saying this for all the time, where you have somebody who will fill in, Moses is dead, but we don't have Joshua yet. Okay, and, and when, when this person is an intentional interim, the people don't criticize that guy because they know he's not staying. He's on his way out. He's, he's, just, he's just there to love the people. But it does give a, a healthy break. Oftentimes, after a founding leader, the second person who comes in is a sacrificial lamb, okay? And they don't make it. I am determined that doesn't happen. I want my successor to be more successful than me. I want me, he must increase and I must decrease, okay? And, and I'm more than happy for that. I, I'm, I, I, as I said, when you've, when you've offered your resignation every Sunday for 42 years, this is not a, not a new stress. So how do you make sure that's not a hit on your ego? We all have ego at some level. Like the whole idea yes. the church got better when I left? Yeah, yeah. How do you make sure, like, how do you become secure enough to want that? The way you need to want it is, is to look at your church like a garden. Let me give you an example. I'm a gardener. Uh, someday I'm gonna write a book on everything I learned about leadership I learned in my garden. Okay, I grow 56 kinds of vegetables and 17 kinds of fruit. And I get in the dirt and, and I've learned more. One of the things that I, every year, when my harvest is over, 
and, I, and everything's done. What I'm most satisfied with is not the harvest of that year, but knowing that that year I enriched the soil a little bit more. I was putting in compost. I was putting in uh, uh, nutrients. I was enriching the soil. When I first started planting my garden, it was bare clay and almost ungrowable, almost ungrowable. But I started enriching the soil every year. Enriching the soil is more important than the harvest because it means that the next year, your crops will be better. And next year, I have been enriching the soil at Saddleback for 42 years so that anybody who comes in and plants seed, they ought to grow. Hmm. They, they really ought to grow because we have such bench strength in our, not just our staff, but in literally our members, of volunteers. But how does that deal with any insecurity you might feel? Like, let's say Saddleback yeah. goes 3x yeah, yeah. the size of when you let it. There's something well, inside me, yeah, right, that yeah, says, yeah. well, why didn't that happen under me? No, 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 no. I'm the exact opposite. I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm going, what I don't want it to do is go to nothing. <laughs> well, there's that. Okay, well, you know, that it went there's down that. after me, which meant it was more personality driven mm. than you thought. Okay, so nothing would thrill me more than Saddleback to grow. Okay, so that's it. But the more important point is, where are you getting your self-identity? Mm-hmm. Are you getting your worth from your work? Are you getting your worth from the applause of other people or is your identity in Christ? And if your identity is truly in Christ, and we all preach on this, but it doesn't mean that you emotionally get it, okay? And and this is one of the big issues is we don't emotionally get what we even preach ourselves, is that God is God and if God likes me and I like me, if you don't like me, what's your problem? Okay, I don't need your approval to be happy. But you know, the truth is, a lot of us in in ministry, we are people pleasers. We do care about approval. We do want the applause. And, 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 And the first step in getting over that addiction is to admit it. Okay, and to just go, uh, you know what? Part of me really likes praise. Well, who doesn't? Yeah, I know. Okay, there's nobody on the planet Earth who doesn't like praise. But it's, I always say, praise is kind of like chewing gum. You chew on it for a while, but you don't swallow it, okay? That when you're running your race, and that's what ministry is, it's a marathon, and we need you to make it to the end. When you're running your race, there are people in the stands that give both cheers and jeers. You gotta ignore them both. They both will cause you to stumble, to fall, and not make it to the finish line. Now, let me just pause here. And I know I'm tracing a rabbit, but thank you, Carrie, for letting me chase a rabbit. It's long-form podcasting. Long-form podcast. Pastors, let me j- I know it's the end of the year, and it's been a tough two years, and, and, and it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get discouraged. I want to say to you, pastors, First, your ministry matters to God, and it has nothing to do with the size of it. A, a pilot who's piloting four people is just as responsible to get those souls to safety as a pilot piloting a plane of 400. Can one guy be less concerned because he only has four people on his plane? No, they're souls, and you're given the responsibility to get them to the destination safely. 
So, so this has nothing to do with size. But if you're going to last in ministry, you got to realize a couple things. Somebody is going to be upset with you every moment of your life. And if you let that get under your skin, you'll never be happy. Because somebody, I am, I am constantly aware that every second of my life, I'm disappointing somebody. Yep. Okay? Because just about the time you get crowd A, please, crowd B gets ticked off. Okay? And then you get them, please, they get, and you can't, even God can't please everybody. <laughs> this week, somebody's praying for two different sports teams to win. Who is God going to favor? Okay? Some are praying for rain and some are praying for sun. Even God can't please anybody, everybody. Only a fool would try to do that. So this is important that you realize part of being in ministry means you're going to have to deal with disapproval. You're going to have to deal with criticism, and you're going to have to deal with disappointment that people get disappointed in you. You can't let that. What other people think of you is none of your business. Hmm. So... On that note, this is a question I wanted to, to ask you. You have taken your share of criticism oh, over the years. a little. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, Rick. And you still got a smile on your face yeah. all these years later. Yeah. I mean, from, um, you know, yeah. you took a lot of uh, flack from the Christian community over deciding that AIDS was the 21st century le leprosy. Yes. We ought to care for people because that's what Christians do. Yeah. Uh, you spoke at several presidential inaugurations. You prayed, I should say. And you were criticized by some on the left. And then yeah. when you were at Obama's yeah. and accepted, you were um, criticized by Christians. Right, right. Uh, there have been all kinds of things yeah. said about you over the years. How do you respond? How do you? What is your internal narrative yeah, on that? Yeah. Well, if the criticism is true, you listen and learn from it. What would be an example of criticism that you would say? Well, sometimes people will criticize me about something that's partially true. Okay. And so I work on the 5% that's partially true, even though they're 90% wrong. Hmm. See, here's the difference. Critics don't realize they're actually enhancing your ministry if you receive it correctly. For instance, there are a lot of people who criticize me on social media. I have never criticized anybody on social media, ever. Hmm. I, will never, I will never fight back. I am most like Christ when I refuse to retaliate. The Bible says Jesus was criticized constantly, and it says he spake not a word unto them. When, he, when, when Pilate, when they challenged him, and the, you've done this, you, they accused him of all kinds of stuff that was false. He, spoke, he would not dignify them with that. Uh, I, I was a while back criticized by a well-known pastor who's written a couple books against me. And uh, he's never met me. He's never been to Saddleback. He doesn't even know what we're doing. I have never said a bad word about him ever, and I won't. And somebody wrote me on, on uh, Twitter somewhere and said, so-and-so pastor said this about you. What do you think about them? And I said, well, I have nothing but the utmost respect for this pastor and his ministry, and what he thinks of me in no way controls what I think of him. Bam. Now, here's, here's the thing. When you respond with a blessing, when you bless those who curse you, instead of defending yourself, instead of trying to get even and try to top them, trying to point out something bad in their life, you just eat it. Leadership absorbs the pain. You just eat it. I'm most like Christ 
when I refused to retaliate. Did you have to learn that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I had to learn it by experience. In fact, there was a time in my life when I was going through so much criticism, and I go, uh, God, why? Why are you allowing this criticism? He goes, because I want you to be able to teach others. Okay, I want you to be able to teach, because every pastor is afraid of criticism. So what would that do to you in those early days as you were figuring that out? Like sleepless well, yeah, nights, and, come yeah, home. Of course, in the early, in the early days, you worry. You worry mm-hmm. about it. And, and, and when you worry about it, you make a criticism bigger and bigger and bigger. Someday I'm going to write a book just on criticism, the little lessons that I will, I've learned. I will buy that book. The, the little lessons I've learned. And, and the point is, here's the thing. When somebody criticizes you and you just smile and you don't retaliate and you respond with joy and with love, God, uh, it anoints you more. You actually get more anointing by passing the criticism test. Now, when people criticize me, I learn from them if there's anything to learn. I always, you could learn from anybody if you know the right questions. I learn from them. They never learn from me, never, which makes me smarter than them. So they don't realize they're actually making you more effective and, and, and the more they hit you, the more effective you are. And when you respond with Christ-likeness and you return blessing for love and love for, for anger and, and criticism, God just says, that's my boy. And he pours out more anointing on you. And you actually end up with more anointing than before the criticism. People don't realize how, critics don't realize how much they've given me more anointing from God. Well, this is super helpful. So yeah. do you have people who are watching what people are saying about you online no. or you just wait if it eventually trickles no, no. out? Yeah, I, yeah, if it trickles out. I, I uh, you know, here's the thing. I, I, I honestly believe that social media is a, is a stumbling block to most people in ministry. I, I really do. Because we're caught up in the moment of the dopamine hits from likes. And you post, and the moment you post it, you're ready. Is anybody gonna like it? Anybody gonna like it? Anybody gonna like it? Anybody gonna like it? Oh, I gotta like. And you get that dopamine hit. That is addicting. Yep. Okay, now, I have 12 million followers on social media. And I post almost nothing. Almost nothing. Uh, In the last week, I've posted more than I've posted in the last three years. uh, Because I just don't do it. Partially is because on something like Twitter, you can't have no context. And so every, no matter what I say, the sky is gray. Somebody will come back and say, well, why are you against gray? Okay, and and you must be a bigot against gray, okay? And I just said the sky was gray, okay? And so so I, I, I really think you need to pay less attention. Get your face out of Facebook and get your face in the book. Hmm. That's what you need to do to be an effective pastor. Would you feel, because you you and I have the advantage of having a pre-digital memory. Yeah. We remember what it was like right. when right. it was really hard to get information, right. like we were talking about earlier. If you were starting over again, mm-hmm. you're 25 years old, Yeah. would you use social media? Yes, but not the way it's being used right now. Oh, so how would you do it? The way young, many, now I don't say all, Many young pastors think that the way they grow their church is by appearing to be cool. Okay. And, and, and they have gotten lost between legitimate marketing hmm. and legitimate messaging of the good news 
and self-promotion. And so they're posting pictures of themselves in this my so-called wonderful life, thinking if everybody thinks I'm a cool pastor, more people will come. I will tell you this, you will attract what you are. And if you are that shallow, you will attract a church full of shallow, self-centered people who are worried about what they think. You will attract whatever you are. And the way to grow a church is not by impressing people by how cool you are. You don't help anybody with your successes. You only help them with your failures, your weaknesses, and your problems. If I were to get up, I could post a photo every day on social media of me and a celebrity. Sure. Because I know them all. Okay, and powerful people around the world, I could, here's me with this guy, and here's me with this girl, and here's me with this rock star, and here's me with, and what would it do? Does that build Saddleback Church? No. All it does is create competition and actually create resentment. Well, who do you think you are? Hmm. You think you're so cool. You think you're so hot. I don't know anybody like that, okay? And so I never, never, promote a push a self-promoting photo or, or or a success in my life. What I do is if I do talk about me, and I don't think that's the primary purpose of social media. I will talk about that in a minute. If I do promote, I, I talk about a weakness, a hurt, a need. And then people go, oh well if Rick went through that and God used him, then maybe God could use me. When I share my pain, losing a son to suicide. When I share my pain, the the struggle Kay and I had in our marriage, when I share going through a depression or going through a discouragement, people go, it it binds us, it unites us. Successes don't unite us, but, but pain does. So here's how you use social media. Use it to encourage people in pain. And if you do that, you'll build a church. Okay, now let me, let me explain the basis for this. It's the parable of the sower. <laughs> Jesus told the parable of the sower, it's so important, it's in three different passages. Okay, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The parable of the sower is the key to the Great Commission, and the parable of the sower is the key to growing your church. Now, Jesus said that there are four kinds of soil represent four kinds of heart. The, uh, the hard soil represent the hard heart, that's totally resistant to the gospel. It, it doesn't even get a chance to penetrate. The, the, the shallow soil represents a shallow heart that responds emotionally, but when the heat's on, it has no root, so it dies. The, the soil with weeds is the distracted heart and the cares and the riches, and being cool is more important than being holy. And, 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 and the cares and riches of this thing choke out the life of the gospel. And so it doesn't grow. The fourth soil is the good soil where the seed is planted and it gets exponential growth, 30, 60, 100 fold. Now, if that is true, and of course it is because Jesus told it, Jesus told it, it means that at any given moment in your community, 75% of the people are non-responsive. <laughs> okay, just saying, I don't care what city you are in what world you're in, 75, three out of four people around you, couldn't care less about the gospel. Yep. Okay, 
So you, if I'm a smart farmer, I'm going to maximize my seed on the good soil. I'm not going to waste it on the 75% where it doesn't get any results. That's bad stewardship. Good stewardship is to plant the maximum soil in the best seed. In the, I mean, best seed in the best soil. Now, here's the question. Okay, if 75% are, are not worth focusing on right now, first, it's not God, it's not my responsibility to prepare the soil. That's the Holy Spirit. I can't prepare a heart, I can't soften a heart, I can't change a heart. My, my job is to see the soft heart and plant the seed as a good farmer. It's God's job to prepare the soil. Now, how, here's the big question. How does God turn hard soil into soft soil? Mm -hmm. huh. He sends a storm. He sends the rain. And he pounds it with rain. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone. So if I'm in a city in Pasadena, California, and I've had a church there for 50 years, the guy who's lived next door and for 20 years has said no, he's gonna keep saying no until he gets in pain. One day, his wife's gonna die. One day, he's gonna get the dreaded word cancer. One day, he gets fired. One day, his child has a scandal. One day, he is gonna be broken by pain, and that's when you have the opportunity to plant the seed. But you've been building a bridge of love all this time, but you're not focusing on the people I've been telling pastors for 50 years, if you'll just focus on people in pain, you'll grow a church. Hmm. You don't have to focus on anybody. And it's God's job to make people have pain. And everybody eventually gets there because nobody gets to go through life pain-free. So even the most self-centered, successful, young professional who thinks, I don't need God, is one day gonna fall flat on his face. Don't focus on anybody else. There are plenty of people out there in pain. And guess what? Next year, there'll be other people in pain who weren't in pain this year. And next year, there'll be somebody else. If you just focus on the 25% in pain, you'll grow a church. What else if you were starting over again? Would you do the same or would you do differently if you were planting saddleback? Well, I made a mistake early on that I don't think many guys are making today. And that is I underestimated the value of music. I did not realize how important music is to the growth of your church. And so in the early time, uh, our music was K on the piano, okay? <laughs> that was it, that was, our, that was our band, all right? And, and, and I knew we could, the hymns didn't make sense, so I was rewriting the words of the hymns, but we were still singing hymns when we first started. And then we started a band, and, and, and then and when we first started out, we tried to appeal to everybody's taste. <laughs> okay, and, and and so one minute we'd do a rock song, then we'd do a country western song, then we'd do an easy listening song, then a Bill Gaither song, then a classical, then a jazz, then a reggae, then a rap. And, and you know who, what kind of audience we had? Nobody. All we did is make everybody mad. If, if, if you, you go to, what radio station would have an audience if they played a different kind of style every time? True. They would have no audience. Okay, now. In your family, I had five people in my family, we listened to five different radio stations. So trying to please everybody with your music is impossible. 
Tell me the kind of music you're using, and I'll tell you who you're reaching right now without having ever been to your church, and I'll tell you who you're never gonna reach. Just tell me the style of music you're using. I'll tell you who you're never gonna reach, and I'll tell you who you are gonna reach. And what happens today is now, uh, so what I did is I actually passed out a card to everybody in church and said, tell me the radio, the call letters of the radio station you listen to. There you go. Okay, and when I got it back, it was overwhelmingly contemporary adult middle of the road. Mm-hmm. It wasn't heavy metal, okay, it wasn't hip hop. It was, it, now in different places that might be, if you got a heavy metal church or a hip hop church, fine. But I'm just saying, you're go, once you decide the style of your music, you're determining who you're gonna reach and who you'll never reach. Far more people will listen to your sermon right. from different backgrounds. But the moment you determine your, music is not only half of your service, it's the first half. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, before you even get up to speak, they've already decided whether they're, they're gonna come back or not. Because this is not, so when people come to your church, the first two questions they ask are not theological, they're sociological. The first two questions they ask are not theological or sociological. Uh, nobody comes as a, do they believe in God here? Mm-hmm. Do they believe, nobody's asking that. What the first question they ask is, uh, is uh, uh, this question. Is there anybody here like me? Okay, so a farmer looks around, are there any other farmers? Uh, a young married couple with pushed in a stroller, any other couples with a stroller? A Vietnamese person, look, any other Vietnamese in here? Uh, a, a military guy, because anybody else got a military haircut? Elderly couple, any other senior citizens in here? We naturally look for people like us in a congregation. If we see somebody like us, we're more likely to stay. If we don't, we're more likely to leave. Now, when we started Saddleback, we were a pretty homogeneous group. Everybody in the church pretty much looked like me. Young, white, and drop-dead sexy, okay? Now, none of that's true anymore. Now, we're Baskin Robbins 51 flavors. Mm -hmm. We, We intentionally, 22 years ago, said we're gonna be a multicultural church. And we actually changed one of the values in our name from uh, atmosphere of acceptance to all nation congregation. How do you develop a multi-church, multi, uh, con- multi-ethnic church? You put whatever you want on stage, okay? If you look at our worship team, and now you look at Saddleback, we are the most diverse church in North America. We speak 168 languages. Hmm. 168 language. Most of my campus pastors aren't white guys. I have 20 black staff. I have Asian uh, staff, ministers, pastors. I have two, uh, Asian staff. I have Middle Eastern staff. I have an Indian pastor from India. We have uh, Latin American pastors, we, you know, and not just one kind of Hispanic. We got every kind of Hispanic. Why? Well, we're in Southern California, of course. Yeah, yeah. Which is very multicultural. Uh, but while I've got 196 languages um, in our church, we've got, there are about 100 more of that in Southern California. So we got a lot farther to go. But, but what, you, what, you, what you attract, what you have is what you'll attract more of. And if you're gonna get more, you gotta intentionally go after them. What would you change about your leadership? You look back at young Rick. Yeah. You look at what you've learned over four decades. We have a- Oh, I don't think anything. I think I did everything correctly. Good, good. Yeah, okay, yeah. Next, next question. question. 
<laughs> you, you got like 10 hour podcast. Uh-huh. We got a lot of yeah, Okay. So what would I do differently? Oh, baby, oh baby. So many things. One of them I, I did say is we didn't put enough emphasis on music at right. first. And, and when we when we went after that, I started seeing, well, that's an important. Uh, I would say one. Because you talked about staff health. Let's go there. You said not all of our staff have been healthy at all seasons. Oh, yeah, right, right. And when I read the comments on my blog, on my site, I see a lot of people fleeing toxic staffs, environments. And and I would say I'll go first. Like there were times where I led the staff and it wasn't very healthy. So was there? what have you learned in that respect? Well, here's the thing. Uh, John Maxwell once talked about, he said, you know, uh, what if, if on a scale of one to 10, uh, you're a seven leader or an eight leader, then you're going to tend to hire sixes, okay? People who are n- not not as with it as you are. You're not going to tend to hire people who are smarter than you, Yeah. okay? Well, then that person, they hire, the six hires a four, and the four hires a three, okay? And I remember looking one time at my children's staff. This is years ago. 35 years ago. No no one named. No, nobody named her. And a long time ago. And and I would just go, I was looking at him and go, how in the world did they get on my staff? Well, I was not uh, involved. I, I'm a pretty hands-off leader. I'm not a micromanager. I'm not a man. But one thing I would say, Pastor, you, you should be involved in is you should have a good process for qualifying staff. Okay, now... I'm not a good qualifier because I tend to believe everybody can do it. I believe you can do it. I don't see your negatives. I don't see, I'm gonna sell you on the job whether you're the right person or not. That's just the way I am. My wife has antenna. Okay. Okay, she is discerning. And there, you need to find who are the discerning people in your church, and it could be some members, who are very discerning, mm-hmm. and it could be some people who are already on staff, and they pass through them before they get to you, and you have final approval, but by the time they get to me, they've, been, they've already been clarified and qualified. But in the early days, we didn't do that, and we, I had never, it's, let me just say it this way, it's better to have no staff than the wrong staff. It's better to have no staff than the wrong staff. We went, I remember for the first five years of the church, people said, um, uh, when are we gonna have a youth group? I said, well, when God brings the right person. I said, wait a minute, you didn't have, we didn't have a leader. When the leader comes, we'll start it. We went seven years without a singles ministry. Why? The wrong leader will cause you more in pain than no leader at all. And so don't get in a hurry for staff. That, I think that's a mistake I made early on is I, you know, at some point, when you're first starting out as a church plant, the qualifications for leadership is you have to have a warm body and a pulse, okay? And if so, you can serve in our church. Now, for instance, you gotta go through all kinds of background checks, you know, you gotta do blood tests, you gotta, I mean, no, there's, a, there's, a, there's all kinds of, what? here's the thing. For, how do you know when a, a, a church is getting bigger? Simple, the attendance is bigger. How do you know when a church is getting more mature? This is a different question. And I think we should talk about some of those um, um, measurements. Yeah. But one of, the, one of the tests of mature is the standards for leadership get tougher. 
To be a leader at Saddleback is far more tougher today as a volunteer or a staff than it was years ago. Let's talk about metrics, because that was on my list of things I wanted okay. to talk about. Right. So COVID, the last two years, has thrown a bomb into everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I talked to a group of pastors a couple of weeks ago when I was here in California, and I said, if you could wave a magic wand, yeah. and you know, other than please bring my church back to where it was two years ago, right. Right, which right. everybody wants. Everybody wants. Everybody wants, Rick. Uh, I said, what would you want? And one of them, yeah. African-American friend who yeah. preaches in Atlanta, yeah. Yeah said, I would just love to know metrics. Like we used to be able to look at attendance and giving. Yes. And we knew that, okay, yes. it doesn't tell the whole story, but yes. at least lets us know where we stand. Yes. Now we don't seem to know anymore. Yes. When you think about metrics and, you know, Barna, uh, yes. who we're doing this as a joint production with, yeah. they measure things like vocation and spiritual health, emotional right. health, relational right, health, right. et cetera, that kind of thing. What do you think some, some metrics for the new age should be? Okay. Uh, I don't want to, I want to come back to this. So ask me a question again about mental and emotional metrics. I will. Okay. After I talk about this. Okay. Okay. Um, First place, let's just think of what is the church? The church is a body, not a business. It is an organism, not an organization. It is a family. It is a flock. It is a relationship. So organizational uh, metrics need to not be business metrics because we're not a business. They need to be body metrics. Now, you say, well, how do you measure stuff in the body? Doctors do it all the time. I go to a doctor's office. He puts a thermometer in my mouth, writes down a number. He, he looks in my ear, he writes down a number. Looks in my eyes, write down, he takes my pulse, writes down a number. He does blood work, writes down a number. Takes my blood pressure, writes down Obviously, it's easy to quantify biological health. Yeah. So if the body, physical body, can be measured for health, then there must be measurements for the spiritual body too. Mm-hmm. We just haven't been using them. Now, a little background. The Bible teaches very clearly that there are five purposes for our church. These five purposes are explained in Acts 2. They are prayed by Jesus, they're modeled in Acts 2, they're prayed for by Jesus in John 17, they are explained by Paul in Ephesians 4, they're shown all through the New Testament, but they're best expressed in the five verbs of the great commandment and the great commission. A great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission is all you need to know about church health. If you will practice the five verbs of the great commandment and the great commission, you'll grow a healthy church. Now, what are they? In the great commandment, he says first, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The Bible word for that is worship. Hmm. Carrie, worship is simply expressing my love to God, okay? Whether I do it by myself or in a small group or with 100 people in a congregation, worship is expressing my love to God. Offering my body as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable worship. Worship is not music. This is a pet peeve of mine. First we had the worship, then we had the sermon. As if the sermon's not worship, the offering's not worship, the prayer's not worship, the invitation's not worship, the silence is not worship, only music. There's no such thing as Christian music. Okay, so worship. there's, There's only Christian lyrics. If I put on a song and you didn't hear any 
no worship. You wouldn't know if it's a Christian song or not. So worship is the first purpose. Okay. Okay, worship is the first purpose. And that's the number one purpose of our life. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So we teach people we are to be a worshiping body. Then it says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible word for that is either service or ministry, mm-hmm. diakonia. Right. When you give, when you serve, when you love your neighbor as yourself, you are ministering to them. You are serving them. It's the diakonia of, of, uh, is, is the word. It is the service. So from the great commandment, we get worship and service. We are to love God and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to worship and to serve. And Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, worship always comes before service. Service doesn't precede worship. Service comes out of worship. Okay, so worship, service. Yeah, now we go to the Great Commission and we get the other three verbs, or the three commands. Go make disciples, that's evangelism. Teach them to do everything I've commanded you, that's discipleship. Mm-hmm. And in the middle he says, oh, by the way, baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is a symbol of incorporation. The Bible says we're baptized into the body of Christ. Baptism is not just a symbol of salvation, it's a symbol of fellowship. We are baptized as belongers into the body of Christ. It is the putting on of the armor. It is the putting on, it's saying, I'm no longer spectator, I'm a participator. Uh, Baptism is is the entry to the church that says, I'm one of you, and and we say, I'm a believer. We really, more accurately, you should say, I'm a belonger, Hmm. because we are called not just to believe, we're called to belong. In fact, all five of these purposes, we are called to honor God through worship, okay? And and we're called to love our neighbors ourselves through fellowship, I mean, through uh, ministry. We are to make disciples, evangelism. We are to uh, mature disciples through teaching them to do everything I commanded you, and we are to mark them, the disciples, baptize them into the fellowship. So baptism is a symbol of fellowship. We're not just, one of the biggest problems today is we have a lot of people who are believers who aren't belongers. Hmm. People who say, I love Jesus, I still need the church, that's nonsense. That's the most immature statement you can say, it means you don't have the slightest idea about the church. The church, Jesus died for the church. That's how important it is. It's like saying, I love you, but I hate your body. Or I love you, but I hate your wife. You'd be offended. Mm-hmm. And, and so fellowship, worship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism are the five purposes of the church. Going back to metrics, that was all prelim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was all prelim. Okay, we need a metric or metrics for each of these five purposes. How do you measure worship? I can tell you. How do you measure discipleship? We figured out some of those ways. Give how us do some you examples. Ministry, okay. How do you measure evangelism, and how do you measure, uh, you, you know, uh, fellowship and ministry? Well, for instance, on, on fellowship, we know um, how many people are in a small group. Okay, uh, uh, how many people are in a small group meeting regularly on that small group? How often do they meet? Uh, you know, if you have more than. Uh, 60 people in your church. Sunday is a crowd. Hmm. It's not real fellowship. In fellowship, less is more. 10 is better than 20. Six is better than 10. 
So you start looking for metrics like that. Yeah. And, and you, you know, it's interesting because you are a counter. Yeah. When we toured your yeah. office, yeah. I mean, you had this nice little display, 50,000 baptisms, you're at 52 now. You right. know your numbers. Right. So you think maybe look beyond just Sunday attendance and start saying number of people in groups, number of people you're baptizing. Yes. Well, exactly. And, and, and in, in worship, uh, I want to know how many people in my church are having a quiet time. Hmm. How do you track that? We have a covenant. One of the things that we've done is in our series of courses, uh, we have a class called Discovering Membership in the Body of Christ. We have a discover called Discovering the Habits for Spiritual Growth. We have a class called uh, Discovering My Shape for Ministry. And we have a class that is Discovering My Life Mission in the World. That's for the first four purposes. We know we can track, and in each, in each of those classes, there's material taught, habits that are taught that they'll use the rest of their life, but there's a covenant. We have a membership covenant, a maturity covenant, a ministry covenant, and a mission covenant. I can tell you how many tithers I have in my church. Hmm. I can tell you how many people are in small groups in my church. I can tell you how many people are having a quiet time in my church. That's the pulse. And, and it's not enough to just do nickels and noses. Okay. Right. Now, giving is a, is a discipleship stat. It's a discipleship But not stat. the only one. But it's not the only one. So in, in many ways, by measuring that quantifiably, yes. you're also looking at the qualitative, yes. Yes. making reasonable guesses about yes. the state of the health. Now, you yes. want to talk emotional. Well, you can, do, you can do an annual survey on that. Okay. You can do an annual survey of your church to take the temperature. One other thing, your church is not mature until it's had a baby. The mark of physical maturity, when a little girl goes through puberty, she becomes a woman when she has the ability to reproduce. Mm -hmm. A little boy becomes a man when he goes through puberty, he has the ability to reproduce. Your church, I don't care how much doctrine it knows, if it hadn't had a baby, and you don't have the ability to reproduce, you're not mature. Now, this is the statistic. I want to change the statistic from the 100 largest churches in America. I just soon throw that one out the door, okay? Uh, we've been on it, but I couldn't care. I don't even read them. What I want to know is how many churches did you start? Hmm. And I would like to change the metrics from I would rather have a church of 75 that planted two other churches than see a church of 1,000 any day any day, because they're gonna reach more people. And so we need to change and we need to reward the multiplying churches, not the big single cell churches. Typically in denominations, the pastors who get invited to preach the pastor conference are the pastors with the biggest crowd. Right. That just means they've got speaking gifts. That's all it means, that's all it means. But what I wanna know is I wanna reward the, the church that is still at 100, but they've started five churches in 20 years, okay? Where are the, where's the reward for those people? That's we a great to, question. We need to change the metric of what gets rewarded because what gets rewarded gets repeated. Emotional and mental well-being. This is the most missing element, Carrie, uh, in the church today. It is is caring well, you've for, been through it. Caring for the emotional health of our members and caring for the mental health of our members. How is it that somebody can sit under the gospel for 30 years in a church 
and still be cantankerous and mean and self-centered and as mean as all get out. There's a likelihood of they've been hurt and that hurt's never been healed. Okay. So when you see the angry person, you see the pain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, when you see an angry person, look past and go, don't ask what's wrong with you. Here's the question. Write down this question. Don't ask what's wrong with you. Ask what happened to you. That's the most important question. What happened to you? Because everything has a reason behind it. And a lot of times when people get angry at you as a pastor and they're upset, they're just reacting to authority. Mm -hmm. And they never have solved the issue with some authority in their life where they were misused, abused, or were never allowed to say their, their idea. They had a dad that would not ever admit he was wrong like that. Um, I honestly believe today one of the most effective forms of evangelism in today's society is what I call apology evangelism. And in apology evangelism, it is you admit to people uh, your fear uh, uh, of talking with them. For instance, let me give you an example. Hmm. Every one of you have neighbors that have lived by you for 10 years and you've never talked to them about the Lord. True story. Okay. Everybody, you have, they've lived by you and you've never talked about the Lord. And now you feel embarrassed to talk to them about the Lord. Here's what I recommend you do. You go to that person and you say, Bob, I need to apologize to you. And he goes, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, re I really feel bad about this. I need to apologize. Well, yeah, what? I said, well, you know, Bob, first let me just say, I I'm sorry. I, I was afraid what you'd think of me. And I was afraid, I, I've never told you about the most important thing in my life. We've lived next to each other for 10 years. And I was afraid to tell you about it because I thought you'd think less of me. I should have known better. You're, you're a better friend than that. Would you please forgive me? The guy's now going, tell me. What, what, you know, what is it? Of course, I, you know, I, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, and it's the most important thing in my life. And my past was forgiven, and I got a purpose for living, and I got a home in heaven, and I never talked to you about it. I'm sorry, would you forgive me? That is the way to get to the, the hardened, secular person. You don't start with, I know it all, but you start with an apology. Mm. And, and so that had to do, I don't know how we got off on that, but from the emotional health and the mental health of people, pastors, we need to care more about, a pe people can have this much head knowledge of scripture, but the hurt is this high. And we've never dealt with the emotional pain in their life or the mental struggles and the mental illnesses they're struggling with. And we expect well, just pray about it. That's about as mean a thing as you can say to somebody struggling with mental illness. You've been through a lot. Yeah. Matthew's mental yeah. illness. and yeah. I watched it firsthand for 27 years. His death by suicide. Yeah. Kay's cancer. Yeah. You, you mentioned, yeah. And, and you've been very public about it, but yeah. you, you have been through periods of feeling depressed yourself. Oh, of course. Take it. Right. No. And in fact, never waste pain. Mm. Okay. If I'm depressed, I'm going to tell my church about it, and I'm going to tell how I'm in the moment, and I'm and I'm going to tell them how I'm dealing with it, and I'll say I'm, I'm discouraged right now, and here's what I'm discouraged about, but this is what I'm working through.
if all of our testimonies are after the fact, they lose the smell of the fire. They don't smell authentic. It's in the moment where you go, guys, this last 90 days, I was in excruciating physical pain. I went through, who knows, they still don't even know what it was, but I got some kind of virus that that has inflamed all the major muscles of my body. I couldn't sleep, I had to be hospitalized, I couldn't walk, uh, I couldn't exercise, I could barely stand, barely sit, couldn't preach for three months. Uh, I, could, I could sit behind a table and speak one service to play the video. But this last Sunday was the first time I stood behind the pulpit in three months. And finally the medicine's working. But I didn't hide that from people. I said, guys, I'm in a lot of pain right now. And you've been praying for me, I need you to, I, I, I pray for you, you pray for me. But I also have done that with emotional things. Uh, when, my, when my brother died, when you're going through grief, when, when Matthew died, of course, we were very open about that. Yeah, and again, I am sorry for Matthew's path. Yeah, thank you. Was that, was that natural for you? Was that a decision when Matthew died that, you know? By the time Matthew died, I had already learned that our greatest ministry will come out of our deepest hurt. I had already learned that, so I knew. Now, that doesn't make it easier. No. I still want my son back. Yeah. Okay, I still want my, But did I know that, here's the point, pain is inevitable. Misery is not, misery is optional. Pain is inevitable, and if you're gonna go through pain, you may as well use it to help other people. That's called redemptive pain. So I'm not gonna waste my pain. So anytime I go through any kind of pain, Paul says in, in, to, in the New Testament, he says, we loved you so much, we, we gave to you not only the gospel of God, but we shared our very own lives. That's the incarnational part of preaching where the word becomes fresh and flesh. And, and it, it, it comes not through, again, I don't share all my stories of success. Okay, the, uh, there are articles come out that go, that's a good article. I never pass it on to the members, never. Okay, but I, but I do pass on when I'm in pain. I watched you do this a couple weeks ago. Tony, my wife and I, we yeah. were at Saddleback. And uh, uh, so this is um, first weekend of December, late November. Oh, got it. And um, you came out. Uh, I thought you were yeah. going to preach. Yeah. So a couple of things struck me. Yeah. Number one, yeah. how warm you were. Yeah. You came out, you're just like, hey, everybody. Yeah, and everyone's right. cheering. And you're yeah. like, sit down, sit down, sit down. Yeah. And you just kind of stood up there and yeah. you prayed for people. But then you said, yeah. hey, I've been in a lot of pain. Yeah. And yeah. I need you to pray for me. Yeah. And then you gave like a mini sermonette. Yeah. And then you said, if you're in pain in the congregation, yeah. emotional, financial, relational pain, yeah. medical pain, stand up. You did the biggest pastoral prayer I've seen in a church service, Rick. And it was moving. Yeah. It was so yeah. moving. Pray, well, I'm in pain, and I and I know that they're in pain, so we can I can fellowship with them. And and you said after you prayed, you said, "Listen." I'm still in pain. It's too painful for me to do five services. So I shot this earlier in the week. Right. I'm going to go now, yeah. but you're going to watch me on video. Right. And then you kind of waved and you yeah. walked off. And right. I thought, you know, I can see you doing that if you're a church planter. Yeah. But, but to do that after 42 years, <laughs> when you could have just as easily had said, guys, run the video yeah, I'm, right. or get a guest, I'm, right. I'm staying home. Right, right. How do you stay that engaged for that long? The only way you can stay engaged is to genuinely love people. If you're, ultimately your motive 
is not love for God and love for people, you won't last in ministry. It's just too hard. <laughs> okay, it's just too, I, mean, I if, you, if you're in, I don't honestly know a single pastor who's in it for money. You know, people talk about all those money-grubbing pastors. Believe me, if I wanted to make money, there's a thousand easier ways to make money than pastoring and dealing with the 24-hour being on call. And I still do hospital visits and I do funerals and I do, you know, I'm, people think, well, he must not do any of that pastoral care. That's how you keep your credibility, okay? And a lot of guys don't really, you know, the problem is they don't wanna be pastors. They wanna be preachers. And what they would like is a vacuum tube where they study all week and hermetically or sucked over to the pulpit and they preach and then as soon as they finish, they hermetically back to their study. Then go be a, a, a professor, okay? Pastor means you care. Pastor means you love. And that means you spend time with people. And I still spend a lot. I spent one day this last month while I was in pain, four hours call, calling people in pain from home, just calling people in pain, staff members and, and members, and calling, uh, there, there, I've had four uh, of my staff members, key staff members, die in the last year. And they were all, they're combined, they were all elders. I've had four elders die. They were all full-time pastors. They're combined over 120 years of service at Saddleback. I personally feel responsible for their widows. I call their widows and I call them and say, how you doing? What do you need? I told, I told Glenn, I'd take care of you. How, how can I help you? What, what do you that kind of, of stuff gives you credibility that honestly, when, when you genuinely love people, now you can fake love for two years. You can't fake it for 42. People figure out you either love them or you don't, but they know I love them. And if I were to say, let's charge hell with squirt guns, they'd say, sure, why not? Let's go. First, I have a track record. But more than that, they know I love them. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And you can't go wrong with that. You can't go wrong. Laying down your life for the sheep, you can't expect people to accept your vision if you're not giving into their life. The other thing that amazes me, um, we have seen so many pastors fail yeah. morally. You've yeah. seen a lot of friends, a lot of they people you start out guardrails. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Okay. Why, why do you think we see so many, and, and I'm sure small church pastors yeah. fail too. It's just yeah. the big ones make the news. No, they make the news. Yeah. So what, what's going on there? Well, and they're, because they're bigger targets, Satan wants to take them down. A guy in a less known church doesn't have as big a impact for causing pain to the body of Christ. Um, the only thing good we can say about Satan is that he doesn't have any new temptations. He's had, he, he doesn't have any new plans. He's used the same ones for, since creation. And the same three temptations he gave to Adam and Eve, he gave to Moses, uh, that's in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 11, he gave to Abraham, he gave to David. They're the same three temptations of Jesus in, in the wilderness, and I could trace them all the way through. Uh, their passion, possession, and position, or sex, salary, and status, or the temptation to be, the temptation to have, and the temptation to feel. They are best explained in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Now, the guy who wrote 1 John also wrote John, 
And in John 3.16, he says, God so loved the world. And then in 1 John 2.16, he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, well, which is it? God so loved the world, but I'm not supposed to love the world. The answer is the definition of the word world. In, when God loved the world, he's talking about the people of the world. And in 1 John 2.16, when he says, love not the world, he's talking about the value system of the world. Because he said in the very next verse, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, they're, they're of the devil. We are to love the people of the world and hate the value system. Okay. The problem is today, as Christians, we do the exact opposite. We hate the people and we love the value system. We are as materialistic and hedonistic and secular as they are, but we hate the people. We, we've, got it, we've got it reversed. We've got it reversed. We are to love the people, Democrats and Republicans. Hmm. I am not allowed to hate anybody. I am to love my enemy. I am to love the communist or the Muslim or the gay person or the person who hates me or anybody who's different than me. I am not allowed to hate anybody. I cannot do that and call myself Christian. On the other hand, I am to hate the value system. Now, lust of the flesh is a temptation to feel. I want to feel good. It's more than sex. Hmm. It's, and, and, and when you're, one of the reasons Satan works on big time pastors more is because um, the emotional drain is larger the more services you do and things like True. that. Okay. And when you're drained, they say, oh, I deserve this. I deserve to look at pornography. I deserve this drink. I deserve that, you know, I'm doing so much for God. That's a lie out of the pit of hell. Okay, it's a lie. But, but it, it, and when you're tired, you're, you're most vulnerable. Jesus was tempted after 40 days of fasting. Oh yeah. Okay, he's wasted, he's tired. Now, when, when Jesus, Satan comes and says, turn these stones to bread, what's wrong with Jesus eating bread? Nothing, nothing. He's hungry. There's nothing wrong with him eating bread. What's the problem here? He's saying, use the gift I gave you for ministry to feed yourself. I've never been tempted to turn stones to bread. Why? I don't have that gift. You will, listen, you will not be simply tempted in your weakness. You will be tempted in your greatest strength. So when you look back yeah. at your life, yeah. um, you know, I, I stepped out of the lead pastor role after 20 years and yeah. a friend of mine messaged me and he said, 20 years without a scandal, that's something these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, gosh, I never thought of it. Yeah. But 42 years. You have to put the guardrails on. Yeah, what are your guardrails? Well, because you need guardrails against all three kinds of sin. Mm. Now, the first one we installed is what's called Saddleback Ten Commandments which was literally a list of 10 things you cannot do if you're on the staff of our church. Okay. I wrote those and we adopted them in 1986 during the Jim Baker and Swaggart scandals. So priests, oh yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. so during Baker and, and Swaggart, I said, that is not gonna happen here. Now, one of my mentors was Billy Graham and I, he told me about the Billy Graham room rule. Mm -hmm. I have never personally been in a room with a woman who is not my wife, with the door closed ever in 50 years, except 
in a in a in a doctor's office with a nurse. Right. Okay. Where she would have the that I've never been in a room with a woman is not my wife with the door closed. Mm. My secretary was my greatest protector when she was my secretary for 20 years. I've had a male assistant for 20 years now. Harriet and I would not go down in the elevator together. Mm. Okay. And she who's gonna go first? We 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 wanted to be I remember, and I, I remember telling this to Bill Hybels back in the 80s. I warned him. I said, Bill, I think you're flirting with fire. The way you, the way you travel with, with female staff and the way you don't hold up lines. I said, and I gave him my Saddleback Ten Commandments. His response to me was, Rick, you're going overboard. That's what he told me. And I looked at him in the eye and I said, Bill, I'd rather go overboard than be thrown overboard. And he was thrown overboard. And I, and, and I had told him, I said, you know, if I'm driving down the street and I see a female member of my staff or female member of my church with a flat tire on the side of the road, I don't stop and help her. I will call AAA and make sure she gets the help, but I'm not gonna, I, I wanna live in such a way that nobody go, well, I saw Rick with the woman, not his wife on the, on the freeway. I wanna live in such a way people have to make up stuff about me to criticize me. Well, I found out they do. <laughs> they do, but but not in that area. Right. Not in that area. Okay. But you also need it in the lust of the eyes, which is materialism, and you need it. Uh, you need uh, uh, um, guardrails in uh, the pride of life, which is humility. And for instance, some of my guardrails. One of the guardrails are why I don't spend so much time on social media. It's not good for my ego. Mm. Okay. It, it appeals to my ego to to write something and then have people applaud it. Okay, so I don't I don't need that in my life. Uh, so today, the pride of life, a lot of it has to do with social media and the way you know. Are you trying to look cool? Who are you trying to impress? The other thing, and then but on 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 the uh, money thing, you know, when G, the Satan takes Satan takes Jesus out and says, "All these things will I give you." if you fall down and worship me. What is that? That's the temptation to sell your ministry for profit. Mm. And it is when you say, I'm not gonna say this this Sunday because that member out there is influential and he's gonna loan me his, his condo for vacation. Right. Okay. He's got a condo and I can't afford a condo. But so he's got, therefore, I'm not gonna say that. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm gonna limit my message in order, I'm gonna sell out in order to please the wealthy person in the church. Hmm. And, and there are lots of ways that people do that. The third way, the guardrail, is on the pride of life. Jesus is taken up on the pinnacle of the temple and Satan goes, hey, jump off the temple and it'll be really cool. Everybody applaud you. They'll say, glory to God, it's God, it's really cool. Yay, God, yay, Jesus, you are the son of God. What's wrong with Jesus getting glory? Nothing. What's wrong with Jesus being recognized as the Son of God? Nothing. It's how it was being done. The, the path to glory is through the cross, not through showing off. Hmm. And, and we will be tempted to do the spectacular in ministry to show off. We will be tempted to show off by, by doing something really cool and be like, hey, watch this, those smoking whistles and blowing around and it's just so subtle that you have to put, I'm not gonna do that on social media. And I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna read my own press releases. And I'm not gonna, 
promote myself like that, and I'm not going to do this and that. And when you do that, again, it goes back to the anointing of God. Promotion comes neither from the east or the west. It comes from the Lord. And so when God finds somebody who goes, I'm, I'm going to build guardrails on these things, then he goes, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may show himself strong in the behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. I have discovered, Carrie, that you don't have to be perfect to be super blessed, obviously. You don't have to be sinless to be. God isn't interested in your sin as much as he is in the direction of your heart. Mm-hmm. I blow it all the time. And there are times I'm prideful. Mm-hmm. There are times I'm materialistic. Uh, there are times I could be tempted in other areas. I have not stumbled in the area of sex, but it's because I, I just, it's not how close to the fire can I get and not get burned. It's how far away can I, can I be can from? Can it possibly be? And, and God willing, I'm going to finish that the only woman I've ever known is my wife. And, and I can say that. But in that, I have to say, Lord, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Here's the biggest thing. Given the right situation, I'm capable of anything. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says. That means you lie to yourself more than you lie to anybody else. I lie to myself more than lie to anybody else. My biggest lies aren't to other people. My biggest lies are to me. I really appreciate what you're saying. And, you know, I, I echo that prayer yeah. that uh, we can finish well, yeah. that you you will finish well. One of the criticisms I've heard, Rick, of the Billy Graham rule, yeah. and, I mean, Billy did, you I'm know, finish well. I'm glad you ran the same. Yeah, no. is, is that women say, well, that's not fair. It creates, you know, a bit of, not a misogynist environment, but, you know, you might mentor me if I was a male campus pastor right. one-on-one, right. but you're never going to do that with a female right. director, right. Right. and it stifles people in the organization. And I think they misunderstood, and of course, I have ordained pastors, women, on my staff, Right. Okay, which created a lot of controversy, too. <laughs> uh, half of my staff is women. Okay. Right. The difference is it's not that I'm afraid of them. I'm afraid of me. Okay, it's not... They're, they've done nothing wrong. It's a matter of, given the right situation, I could be guilty of anything. So, I don't trust my own heart. And so I have to explain to them, this isn't this isn't really anything about to do with you. It has to do with my own propensity to sin. My own propensity to deny that I'm a human being, okay, and that I, that I am fallen, I'm broken. And, and, and I simply, the Bible is very clear about this in Titus 2, that the older women are to disciple the younger women, and the older men are to disciple the younger men. And now in the scripture, Paul tells Timothy, treat the older men, men in your church, that's older in the Lord, as, as fathers. Treat the older women in your church as mothers. Treat the younger women in your church as sisters, and treat the younger men in your church as brothers. I have, um, there was a period in my life when the church where I had identified five fathers in the church. These were guys who had been Christians longer than me. And I went to each of those guys and I said, look, we don't have a board, there's no election here, but if you see anything in my life that's out of base, you come to me and you have the right to speak in and say, Warren, correct this. And I told, they were spiritual, they had been Christians longer than me. Now, I've been a Christian now uh, 62 years. 
So I don't have any spiritual fathers in the church <laughs> anymore. I think I'm the oldest one. Um, I have tons of spiritual sisters. Hmm. And I have spiritual sisters who come to me and say, Rick, have you ever thought about this from a female viewpoint? No, and you're right. And I, and I write it down. And, and, and there are women who speak into my life all the time as spiritual sisters, lots of spiritual sisters, lots of spiritual brothers. I just don't have any spiritual mothers because I haven't found any woman in the church to admitting to be an older woman yet. They're all, they may be 85 years old, but they're still a spiritual sister. <laughs> okay. And, and so you feel that way through mentoring that that's an opportunity for women on your side. Oh, oh, I do. I do. And, 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 and our women pastors can mentor other women pastors. Okay. All right. Absolutely. You and Kay have had your share of challenges in your marriage. Oh, yeah. Especially the early years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was that? Well, we're the exact opposite in every single cell of our <laughs> DNA. Okay, if I say hi, she says hello. If I say black, she says white. It's Tweedledee, Tweedledum. For, for the first 10 years of our marriage, there was an old uh, Huey Lewis in the News uh, song that we called, uh, that was our theme song called Happy to be Stuck with You. Okay, and, and, and the truth is, we would have never gotten married if we had done it uh, in the correct uh, do your enneagram and do your premarital counseling and all, and because any any counselor have said, keep keep away any from counselor could have said this marriage is no way it's going to work because we're the exact opposite in so many ways. I took Kay out on our first date and eight days later we were engaged. We were engaged before our second date. And then and I did not want to tell that to my kids for years because it's all the wrong way to do it. <laughs> and then she moved during our engagement to Birmingham, Alabama to work in an inner city black church. And I moved to Nagasaki, Japan to plant a church in Nagasaki. And so we were separated our entire engagement. So when we got married, it's like we knew we were in love and we thought God had put us together, but who are you? <laughs> and, and the first two years were hell on earth. And really, we did not get along. And I was teaching at a Christian college, and I was making four hundred dollars a month. And my, I said, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna make this thing work if it kills us. Well, it nearly did. So we got a Christian counselor. And then forty-five years ago, counseling was not as acceptable as it is today. Your pastors didn't go get counseling. We went to a Christian counselor. It cost me a hundred dollars a month, and I'm making a hundred dollars a week, and I'm making four hundred dollars a month. Okay, so no, no, so I've got that wrong, I'm sorry. It cost me 400 a month, I was making 800 a month. So half of my income was going to, so I put it on my MasterCard. I've often thought I should do a, a commercial, said, um, a saved marriage, priceless, okay? <laughs> How much is your marriage worth? People say, I can't afford counseling. You can't afford not to get it. Yeah. How much would your, how much is your happiness worth? I'd pay a million bucks for my marriage today. Hmm. I, I, can't, I can't, I'm so in love with my wife, more in love with her than I've ever been in my life. And there would be no saddleback, there'd be no celebrate recovery, there'd no, be no peace plan, there would be no purpose-driven life, there would be no blessing of uh, over a million pastors in 164 countries if our marriage had crumbled. So I'm glad we stuck together. We now know that we would have never made it if we, of course, without the Lord, but yeah. we, we know that we, we would have never gotten together if we'd gone through premarital counseling and that, but God knew what we needed. And here's the thing, I've discovered when I used to do marriage counseling, the marriage is most in trouble where the people are most alike because they get bored with each other. The greater your differences in marriage, the greater your potential for spiritual growth and sanctification. 
The greater your differences, the greater your potential for sanctification and spiritual growth. My wife, the Holy Spirit has used my wife more than anybody else to hone off my rough edges and to teach me things I wouldn't have learned any other way. And, and really, if you want to summarize marriage counseling in two words, it's this, grow up. Okay. <laughs> grow up. I want what I want, you what you want, we're gonna have conflict. And that's not gonna work. But Jesus in me and Jesus in you is gonna learn how to get along. But the, the lessons we learned from that helped me be a better leader and, and helped shape me. So the, the marriage problems, now I would not have even considered planting a church in the first two years, our marriage was so rocky. Mm. But by the year five, when we planted, we had worked through a lot of that pain. And I felt like I, I could teach on marriage without being a hypocrite. Okay. And I could, I could share from our weaknesses and I could, we had grown enough from that. We could learn from that. So, uh, that's who you choose as a spouse is an enormous, obviously uh, an enormous, uh, shaper of your life. Rick, can't thank you enough. Well, uh, people can find you on social, yeah, <laughs> whether that's good or bad. Yeah. And uh, they can find you at Saddleback. And then uh, if they want well, to. Let, let me just say this yeah, word yeah, yeah. about say, social media. Yeah. When, 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 when uh, Twitter first came out, a guy on my staff who was running our tech thing was, he knew about it way in advance. Sure. He wrote the Microsoft certification test the guy who was leading my tech team. And he came to me one day and said, Rick, you're gonna to wanna to get on this. It's called Twitter and you t type in certain things and you just tell people what's going on in your life. And I looked at him and I said, that is the most narcissistic thing I could th possibly think of. Why should I tell, write, you know, why should I write, I just ate a burrito and passed gas. First, why should I write it? And second, why should you care, okay? And second, look at how cool I am with this great food right here. I said, I can't think of anything that would stroke it more. So I, even though I, I stayed off it for like two years, in the first two years, but he secretly put me on there. And, and, and so one day I'm sitting doing the funeral up of a, of a missiologist uh, uh, who had taught at Fuller Seminary, and I'm teaching this funeral with John Piper. Now, John is the least narcissistic guy that I know. Mm. And so we're sitting together, and John leans over to me in the, in the, in the funeral, on the, sitting on the front stage. He goes, hey, Rick, I'm on Twitter. And I go, what? I just couldn't think of John, John Piper being on Twitter. And I go, why? Why are you on Twitter? He goes, oh, I use it to mentor. Ding, light bulb. Now I have a purpose for social media. So if you're using to edify other people, go right ahead. But if you're using it to show off, stop it. Okay, that's it. That's my advice. We're over and out. God bless you, everybody. With that, Rick, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. Well, uh, that was pretty much bucket list, and there will be a round two. <laughs> Rick and I will have to hammer it out, but I'll go back and... Uh, uh, and we'll set that up. But I hope you really enjoyed that. There's a lot of wisdom there and a lot we did not tap into. There is more. There's bonus footage over on my YouTube channel. So you'll see the whole video of the interview that you just heard. But you'll also get the tour of his offices and library, which is pretty epic. 
I asked Rick what he was going to do with his library, you know, when he wasn't here anymore. And he said, I don't know. And I said, this is a treasure for the church. And uh, I, I know he's going to figure that out. And he's got a lot of years ahead of him. I've got some other interviews with Rick on Church Pulse Weekly podcast and then another episode here where we talk about what's next for him as well. He'll very much be leading in the Capital C Church over the next decade and beyond. So, Anyway, all that said, thanks to our partners for this episode. You can start the new year off right with the 2022 Digital Playbook from ProMedia Fire. Claim your copy today at promediafire.com slash 2022 and sign up for your free 14-day trial of their texting app, Glue's texting app called Thrive and start connecting with your church community. Go to thrive with a Y, T-H-R-Y-V-E dot I-O and get started for free today. Next episode, another hero of mine, Don Miller. Donald Miller is going to be on the podcast. And uh, well, here's an excerpt from the conversation. Wait a minute. Business Made Simple Don, Blue Light Jazz Don. Are they actually the same people? It's been quite the journey. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Well, my wife asked that question. So <laughs> does she? <laughs> there, there's been a couple of times and it always, it's the most pleasing thing anybody can say for reasons I don't understand, but they'll say, uh, does anybody confuse you with the guy who wrote Blue Like Jazz? And uh, I think, yeah. <laughs> like they I don't know, right? They don't know. I often confuse myself with the guy who wrote Blue Like Jazz. So next episode, if you subscribe, you get it automatically. And thank you for those of you who have left ratings and reviews. And if you haven't done that yet and really appreciate this podcast, we would love for you to do that. Wherever you listen, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, wherever, uh, just leave a review. We would really appreciate it. Also coming up, a future series, Mark Sayers, Nona Jones, DJ Soto, Craig Rochelle, Bobby Grunwald, Vance Roosh, and others. Coming up, we're going to talk about the future of the metaverse, uh, Web3, and so much more hybrid church, uh, crypto, AI. It's going to be a fascinating thing. I'm just really smitten by those things lately. So I thought, well, why not bring you four or five episodes about that and uh, lots of others coming up this year as well. And subscribers, you get that automatically. And now that we're in a new year, hey, before I let you go, I want to ask you about your habits. Are your current habits getting you to where you want to be? I know we're four days into a new year. You're like, ah, I got one already up in flame. Well, you know what? You can set goals or you can just actually reset your life. And uh, I've got a brand new course to help you make progress in 2022. So this week, I'm releasing the complete At Your Best course. So I wrote a book, was re released a few months ago called At Your Best. And it's been featured in Forbes, in uh, what, Fast Company, been profiled by Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink in the Next Big Idea Club. And it's helped, well, over 20,000 leaders so far get time, energy, and priorities working in their favor. However, I've got material I didn't put in the book and I didn't put in the masterclass. And that's why I'm releasing the complete At Your Best course. It's got the strategies that I use every single day to help me get more done in less time. So if you want to become a ninja at time management, you can get everything, including the masterclass and brand new units in the complete course. So the course will cover the basics of setting up a productive life, like learning how to leverage your time, energy, and priorities. But it will also cover seven advanced productivity principles and strategies I haven't shared anywhere else. Uh, everything about how to manage your inbox to how to avoid what I call a gray zone. We talked about green, yellow, red. I'll talk about gray zone how to maximize your meetings and other things. And what that will mean is more peace of mind, more time at home for you, and also a little more sanity in the chaos because it looks like this year is still going to be chaotic. So you can enroll today by going to atyourbestcourse.com. 
The current pricing and offers expire in just a couple of days, so don't miss out. And, well, sometime around the time this airs, we are going to hit a new milestone, 20 million downloads, and that's because of you. So we're going to be sharing $1,500 in Starbucks on my social media channels. So if you want to get in on that, we do that from time to time. Uh, And thanks for listening to the end. I know a bunch of you actually do that. Uh, And here's the bonus. Uh, Just follow me on the socials. I'm C. Newhoff on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Carrie Newhoff on Instagram. When we hit 20 million, which may be happening this week, we'll post a barcode you can share at the Starbucks checkout. Hey guys, long epic episode. Check out what's happening on YouTube too. So grateful for you. Glad we get to do this for another year. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.